These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. <coughs> Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pur, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stall, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? and let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with the mid so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, let's, uh, let's keep the Bible open, page uh, 54, and look at it together. And just uh, think as we start about uh, the census. I don't know if you saw this. Um, so before uh, Christmas, the details were released of the census that we'd all contributed to back in 2021. And one of the striking things um, was in the area of religion. So here's from the, the Humanist UK uh, website. Um, these are just the facts. They've not put any spin on it. These are just the facts um, of it. Um, and for the first time in the history of uh, censuses here, less than 50% of Britons identify as Christian uh, so you could go back to 2011, to the census there, it would have been 59% uh, who would have identified as Christian. Uh, you see there, 2021, 
percent. Now, how are we to respond uh, to that? Um, should we fear? Should we? Uh, should we panic? I mean, it's helpful to remember that in the Bible, God's always worked through a minority, uh, always. Uh, and yet, um, as we see that, we feel increasingly uh, on the edge as Christians. And what we believe, we're told, is not just uh, irrelevant, but increasingly we're told it's bad. It's harmful to hold to the things that the Bible holds to. And so we have a bunch of questions, I guess, as we hear of that. We ask things like, well, will, will Christianity survive uh, in the UK? What's it going to look like for the next generation, for the children of this uh, church family? You know, and should we, given that we're under so much pressure, given we're being marginalized, should we maybe soften what the Bible says? And is that going to be the way forward for us in our culture? To win our culture back, let's just soften the message of the Bible. Maybe that would win us back and the percentages would rise. Is that the right approach? And questions like, well, where is God in this? Does God care about his reputation? Does he not know that the, the numbers seem to be going down? Where's, where's God? That's me some, some of the questions that we might have in response to that. And those, I think, would have been the similar questions to what... Um, believers in Exodus 1 would have asked as they faced extinction at the hands of Egypt. And so we're starting this book of Exodus. As Nick said, we're doing it as a whole church. Uh, we want the parents to be involved uh, with their leaders as uh, children are, are taught. And we'll, we'll be looking at it this term. We won't get through it all this term. A lot to get through. Here's the shape of it. So um, we'll look at Exodus 1 to 18, um, January, February, early bit of March. Then we'll take a pause. We'll look at a doctrine, truths about the cross. Just some sermons that help us as we come to Easter, just to understand the wonderful depths of what Jesus did when he died for us. And then after Easter, we'll come back to Exodus again and some other uh, things uh, also. Look, here's a provisional summary of what Exodus is, is about. I'm sure we can tweak this as we go through. But here's, here's a sort of first run at it. Exodus is about the God who frees us from slavery for knowing and serving him and for his presence among his people. It's a bit long, it's a bit clunky, but really uh, what we're trying to get at is a few things. First of all, this is a book about God. The Bible is a book about God. It's where we meet him. It's a book about freedom. I mean, it's the book that people have gone to over the centuries to, to, to look at what freedom is. It's freedom from Pharaoh. It's freedom from slavery. But the point of the book is that it's not just freedom from, it's also freedom for. We're freed for knowing God. We're freed for knowing him as our redeemer. We're freed for serving him. You know, we all serve someone or something. You're rescued from Pharaoh. You don't just go into a vacuum. You either serve yourself or you serve something else. You serve idols or you serve God. And the culmination of the book, the, the aim of it all, is that God might dwell among us, his people. And so we'll see in the second half of the, the book, there's lots to do with the construction and the design of the, of the tabernacle. 
the place where God met with his people, the tent in the, in the desert as a precursor to the temple. And it'd be very easy just to teach the first half of the book. In fact, I was tempted to do so. You know, we all know the familiar bits, just up to chapter 15, the Red Sea. And then we get this bit about the temple. What's, what's all that about? Is that really relevant? Do we really need to teach on that? Yes, we do. Yes, we do, because all of Scripture is written for our encouragement. And actually, the whole purpose of the rescue was for the presence of God amongst his people. So we must teach on it, and we will. And the book, in fact, ends in chapter 40 with the presence of God coming into the tabernacle. And yet there's a problem because God is so holy that he can go into the tabernacle, but none of his people can. And so we'll see we need the book of Exodus. To Leviticus, sorry, afterwards. We'll need the book of Leviticus to teach us about sacrifices and how it is that a sinful people can come to a holy God. All of that is in the future. And so it's about the God who frees us from slavery for service and his presence. Here's, here's a very rough structure. Um, freedom from slavery. That's you know chapters about Egypt and the Red Sea. And then freedom for knowing and serving God. We'll go to Mount Sinai. We'll, we'll see the law, the Ten Commandments. And then freedom for God's presence. And we'll still be at Mount Sinai, but we'll have the tabernacle as well. Look, we'll come back to, to that. So that's what it's about. It's a book about God. And its aim is that you and I would, at the end of our time in Exodus, know our God more and more and serve him. Not the idols, not the other gods, but serve him and enjoy his presence amongst us, his people. So will you pray for that as we, as we journey through this book together? Pray it for yourselves, the people next to you as you sit on a Sunday, your small group, your family, that, that all of us would know our God better. And the book as well as that has a, has a missionary focus to it. It's, it's not just that we know God and look in. No, always the Bible is reaching out. God is reaching out. The repeated phrase in the book is that um, God wants people to know that he is the Lord. And he wants his people to know that. Uh, he wants Pharaoh to know that. He wants the nations to know that. And that's the same today. He wants us, his people, to know him. But he wants the people of Bromley and far beyond to know that he is the Lord. So we're on a journey uh, in the book of Exodus. But we start in chapter 1. And the headline from this chapter really is that God is faithful, so fear him. God is faithful, so fear him. And we can say a bit more about uh, these. Let's just break it down into, into three. Firstly, God is faithful to his promises. And this is verses 1 to 7. We won't read it uh, uh, all now. Julie's already got us through all of the names, so I won't have a, have a go at getting it wrong. She got them all right, it seems. So, uh, but Exodus verses 1 uh, to 7. Actually, the um, verse 1 starts in the Hebrew with an and. It says, and these are the names. Now, you and I were all taught at school, and I was an English teacher. We were all taught at school. You should never begin a sentence with the, with the word and, should you? And yet the, the Bible writer does because he's making a point. He's making a point that this book comes in, in continuity with the book of Genesis. Um, the writer is 
uh, is Moses. He's writing in continuity with the bigger story. In fact, the first nine words of the book repeat words that he used in Genesis 46, 8. Scribble that down for your notes if you want to look at it later. But you just see the precise same words, Genesis 46, 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel. So here are the 12 sons, the the 12 tribes of Israel as they would become. And now all of them are in Egypt together. And there are 70 of them in this family. But this is a new chapter in their history. We're told in verse uh, 6 that Joseph and all of his 11 brothers died. Think about what a big moment of transition that was for this nation. The founding fathers of the nation were all gone. They might wonder what would happen next. Would this be the end for them? And yet the writer Moses wants us to know that this is not the end. There's an and. It continues. And these are the names. Because God is faithful. God never ends. And although Joseph dies in verse 6, in spite of all of that, verse 7, would you look, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God is faithful to his promises, says the writer. And I say promises Because this verse draws precisely on the language of promises that God made in the book of Genesis. So back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God spoke to Adam and Eve. And he said, you remember, be fruitful and multiply. Remember, be fruitful and multiply. And it's exactly the same word that we have here for multiply. So they've got a they've got a, a missionary purpose there to, to multiply and spread his name, his image bearers around the world. And, and we get this um, same word repeated in our passage. Verse 7, they multiplied. Verse 10, they multiplied. Verse 12, they multiplied. Verse 20, same word. So God promised, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And here we see it happening in the book of Exodus. Or take another promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. In fact, let's just turn to that. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And that's on page 10. Page 10, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant. He said to Abraham, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are the foundational promises of the Bible. There are three parts to it. I'll make you, I'll give you a land. He promised that would be the land of Canaan. I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you. They shaped the whole Bible, these promises. But for Abraham and Sarah, it seemed absolutely impossible. Abraham was 75 years old when the promise was given to him. And yet, and yet God was faithful to his promise. 
Isaac, the son, came along, then Jacob, and then the 12 sons. And now, verse 7, back in Exodus 1, uh, we see a people living under the blessing of God, multiplying. We see a people becoming a great nation. See, God is faithful to his promises. They're not yet in the land. That's the third part that will come. But God is proving that he's faithful. Although maybe you noticed, you notice God is not named here. Not named in these first seven verses. In fact, only three times in the chapter is he named, and that's similar in chapter 2. And so we're presented with a world where it seems that God is not known. Certainly Egypt and Pharaoh don't know him. God will have to reveal himself. In chapter 3, he reveals his name. And God will reveal himself in great actions, the plagues, the, the Red Sea. Revelation and redemption will shape this, this book. But it seems that maybe even to God's people, he seems absent to them. Not particularly mentioned. Apart from the midwives, we'll come to them in a bit. They fear God, they know of him. But I think the point is that, in effect, the Genesis stuff, the Genesis promises, they're there if you go looking for them, but you could easily miss it. And I wonder, isn't that often the way in the Bible with God and his promises? Sometimes the way for us too. We, we have God's promises. So for us as New Testament believers, we have God's promises that, that Jesus' kingdom will be the largest of all of the kingdoms. We have God's promises that he'll provide for us, his people along the way. That he'll grow us. That he'll keep us for heaven. But circumstances often suggest that God is Absent, it can look and feel like that. We wonder in our church or in our lives, why could God allow those events to happen? Or we say, if God is the Lord, why doesn't he just sort of snap his fingers and make the hard things go away? Questions like that are not necessarily a sign of spiritual immaturity or distrust of God. Very often that's just the honest yearning of God's people who long for his presence. And Exodus knows that. It ends with the presence of God. But it starts with his apparent absence. And yet there are enough clues, there always are for believers, that God is faithful to his promises. So that's the first thing. That's verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Let's go on though, secondly. God is faithful even in affliction. God is faithful even in affliction. This is verse 8 onwards. So, of course, so far so good up to verse 7. So far so good. The people are multiplying until we get to verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly. With them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, like most uh, tyrants from history, there's a parano par paranoia. Um, for Stalin, there was that. For Hitler, for Putin, it seems, for Pharaoh, a, a paranoia, worried about being overthrown by those under their rule. And so Pharaoh plans 
He plans to keep them busy. He plans to break them so they have no energy to multiply. He increases their, their labor. And we see that today, this sort of shift of things, don't we? Economic migrants who are welcomed at first by a nation, a cheap labor force, and then resented and feared. And maybe you know that in sad experience. And so here in this chapter, there is a shift in immigration policy in the housing area where the people lived becomes a labor camp. And this is our first encounter with the Pharaoh that we're going to see through these early chapters. And he is an evil slave driver. Of course, that's not what he calls it. Uh, he calls it dealing shrewdly with people. Did you notice that cynical, insidious approach? He says, let's just deal shrewdly with people. He's a pragmatist. Let's just deal wisely. Let's be wise about these people who are in our land. Uh, but of course, that sort of language just masks a horrific, evil, dehumanizing to people that he's meant to be ruling and serving. And in verse 13, he is ruthless. The word comes up a couple of times. He is ruthless. He is brutal. He puts the people into service, slavery, three times, service, service, service. And again, this is an outworking of, of Genesis. Right at the start of, of the book of Genesis, God promised right after the fall, God promised that from that point onwards, there would always be a conflict between the, the, the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. There would always be that godly line, but also that, that conflict between them. And Pharaoh very definitely is of the seed of the serpent. In fact, we, we know from history that the Pharaohs wore a, a snake on their crown, a, a cobra. That's a giveaway clue, isn't it, really, which side uh, he was on. And so here at the start of this book is the, is the conflict between Pharaoh and God that will continue through Exodus chapters 1 to, to 14. And yet verse 12 makes it clear from the outset that Pharaoh will be no match for God. He will lose. And here's the early sign in verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of God. God is at work. God is faithful, even in affliction. And in a strange way, the fact that the affliction is happening is a sign of God's faithfulness. He promised actually to Abraham in, in chapter 15, verse 13. Again, you look it up later, chapter 15, verse 13. He promised that Abraham's descendants, his seed, would be slaves in a foreign land. That they'd be afflicted by another nation for 400 years. He promised it. And God keeps his promises, even the hard ones. Just like when Jesus promised persecution for his people. When we face that, it is a strange encouragement that Jesus promised it, that he knew that it would happen. So Peter says, don't, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something was strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of, of Jesus. So he promised that this would happen. Actually, the promise to Abraham didn't end there. He also promised that he'd judge that nation, that they'd come out of the land, that his people could hold on to that part of the promise too, as they did. 
But here in verse 12, in the meantime, God actually uses Pharaoh's attempt to squash the people to increase the numbers. The more he oppressed, the more he just created the multiplication of God's people. And so you see that the, the joke is on Pharaoh here. That's how it works. The joke's on Pharaoh. There he is trying to stop the growth, and he's just causing growth by his actions. It's been the case throughout history as people have tried to stop and persecute the church. I asked um, Martin and Yancey, our mission partners this week, about um, that. If you ever want a sort of encouragement of what God's doing around the world, just chat to, chat to them. They'll tell you the hard things that are going on, but there are always encouragements as to what God's doing. Many of us would know stories about um, how this worked out in China, maybe how it's working out, history will reveal in, in Afghanistan and, and, and North Korea. But they, they told me the story of the, the Kabili Muslims in Algeria. Don't know much about them, anything really. But 25 years ago, Martin tells me there were no believers known in that people group, the Kabili Muslims. In fact, when, when the first believers came to faith about 25 years ago, they were murdered. Since that time, to, to try and squash the church, the government clamped down, largely using financial measures to try and squash them and stop them. They started locking the churches and closing them. Martin says at some point, the church leaders went to the government as the leaders were starting to be thrown into prison. And they said, if you put our pastors in prison, all that will happen is that others will step forward and you'll just need bigger prisons. Wow. Wow. You'll just need bigger prisons. And when we get into prison, we'll just preach the gospel there. You won't be able to stop us. Wow. Martin said he went to visit recently, six years ago, 80 to 100,000 believers. In that people group, he said there were queues outside the church. He said it's a missionary church now. They're sending believers to Iraq and Syria. It's amazing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. You see, the joke is on the government there. Try to squash God's people. The more Pharaoh oppressed, the more they multiplied. I, I don't know what pressure you feel you face as a Christian at the moment. It may be very real. I don't know what fears we have for the country that we live in for the next generation. But take heart. Take heart, brothers and sisters. God is faithful even in affliction, and he can and will use it for growth. And so we come to the third and the last point from the passage, which is from verse 15 onwards, which is that God is faithful, and so fear him. God is faithful, so fear him. So we've had plan A, which was slave driving. We now come to plan B, which is genocide. don't know what other word you'd use for what he, he, he does. He summons two of the Hebrew midwives, maybe the ones who supervise the others. And he gives them this chilling command. A chilling command to those who are meant to preserve life to do the very opposite. Verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. The commands are horrific. Command. It's brutal. I mean, maybe he calls it dealing shrewdly with people. The Bible calls it murder. It's horrific. It's awful. Now, Moses doesn't focus on the ingenious excuse of, um, of the midwives. Um, ask me after about that if you want to, or talk about it in, in groups. The, the focus is on, on how these brave women, and it's often, it's often brave women in, in life and often in the Bible, who find the courage to stand up to the brutal, murderous superpower. And we're told twice that they feared God. That's what it came down to, verse 17. They didn't do it because they feared God. Verse 21. And because the midwives feared God. And God is now mentioned. It wasn't early. He's now mentioned three times in, in, in this little section. Not much. Not much. Pharaoh and the midwives are on the front stage. They're the main actors. Until chapter 3, really, God is on the backstage in the margins. But there were some who knew him. Even in a world where God seemed absent, there were some who knew him. And these ones, they had a line that they would not cross. They said to themselves, we must follow God's ways even if it costs us. They feared God. Now, fear God for the believer doesn't mean that, that we, we quake in fear before him as an enraged headmaster. Now, Christians know God as their, their loving father. But it's a bit like the, someone says, it's a bit like the, the sea. I love, you know, sailing on the sea. I love, I love the sea. But if you've ever seen the, the sea in a storm, you know not to play games with it. You, you have a, a healthy respect and fear. You, you love it, but you, you fear it. It's something like that with us. Our, our allegiance is with God. That's what it means to fear God. Our ultimate allegiance is with him. And we put him and his ways first. And so as we think about how might we apply this to us, let's just try to be precise on the situation that's in front of us. Here is a situation where those in power are putting pressure on people to cross an ethical line. And they say no. Now, where might that apply to us? You can think for yourselves in your own lives and share in your small groups that. But let me just give three examples I, I can think of. Um, uh, one might be many of us in our workplaces uh, know what it's like to live under um, inclusion and diversity policies, which are increasingly restrictive of, of, of Christian uh, liberties. They, they, they put pressure on us to say things, perhaps in the area of, of gender, especially at the moment. Um, things that the Bible doesn't hold to be true. Many of us are feeling the pressure on that. And I guess the question for us is, do we have a line? Some of us might draw it in different places, but do we, do we have one? Are, are we going to, is there a point where we'll say no? I spoke to a man recently, he, he, because of what he was being asked to do or write, went to his, his line manager and said, I, I don't feel comfortable uh, doing that or writing that. Actually, in this situation, the, the line manager um, listened and the HR 
policy was dialed down a bit. It's not always the case. It took courage to do that. You might find hostility instead. So there's one area, perhaps. Look, a second that I think is particularly pertinent to this passage. Uh, here are people, these two women, whose job it is to protect life, who are being told to take it. Now, God wants all of us. It's one of the principles of the Bible, to protect life. It's the job of all of us to speak for the, for the voiceless. And some of the most vulnerable in law are the unborn and those at the end of life. And so we need to pray, it seems to me, especially for all of us as a church, but especially for those whose, whose particular job it is as medics to be in this area who may come under the most pressure. And if there are those in our groups like that and friendships, we could ask them, how can I pray for you? How can I support you in what must be a tough environment to be a Christian? So there you see, seems to me, a second uh, example. And the third, just to mention to us as a church, some will know, some may not yet, that the Church of England in February will, will make some proposals from the House of Bishops to the Synod, which is the governing body um, of the Church of England, for a vote in July. And that proposal may include blessing forms of relationship which aren't God's design for flourishing. Marriage in the Bible is to be between one man and one woman. We may be asked to say that something is marriage which God doesn't call marriage. And the question for us as a church will be, will we have a line? What will it be? Will we fear God or man? And some of us have already drawn that particular line in family and friendships. And that's been tough for you. And you encourage the rest of us through your courage. Now, I don't feel very courageous in any of those areas. I wonder if you do. I don't feel very courageous in any of those areas. But I want to be like these brave women. Don't you? I want to desperately in my best moments, even though I know it will cost, I want to be like these brave women. They inspire us. I mean, as their lives are held in the balance, they, they say, verse 19, I don't know if they said it with a straight face or not. Oh, well, I'm very sorry, but because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, um, we, we couldn't get there in time. They're very vigorous. They give birth before the midwife. They said that with a straight face. And they're brilliant. Brilliant women. And it's funny. It's clever. It's bold. They do it for God. Now, what caused them to fear God? What was the one thing that we can draw on? I don't think we're told. I really wanted to find it. Maybe you can find it in the passage, and you can tell the one thing they held on to that will make the difference for us. I don't think we're told. We can guess. We can guess that they knew God's work through Abraham and, and Joseph Maybe they saw God's unseen hand in the multiplying of the people. They certainly knew the goodness of, of God in contrast to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is someone who takes life. God's one who gives life. In verse 21, they're given families. Of course, in the New Testament, we're not promised nuclear family or children, but God does promise us the family of his church. He promises us that. So they, they knew the goodness of God, but the one thing that they knew, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. But if we want to be like them, 
we are going to be given lots of reasons in the coming chapters to fear God. They would have seen lots of evidence. And so for us, come back and listen to Exodus. If we want reasons to fear God and see what he's like, pray for courage and keep listening to this book. Because in this book, we'll be given evidence that God is greater than Pharaoh, that he is the one to fear, not the big scary tyrant. You and I face big and scary tyrants. And maybe it's... uh, that line manager or our culture or, or rulers. And God might seem absent. The census says we're under pressure. We should soften the Bible for our culture. But we've seen even greater evidence than they saw that God is greater than the slave drivers. Many centuries later, another big, scary king, Herod, would try to stop God's purposes, would try to slaughter the boys of a town in Bethlehem. And yet he couldn't stop God's purposes. Jesus was born, and in his death and resurrection, he triumphed over the slave driver, Satan. He proved that God is the one to fear. As we close, let's just look at 1 Peter 3 on the screen. Here, I think it's a sort of a New Testament version of this, where Peter says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is going to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. He's saying the same thing. He's saying God is faithful. Fear him. God is faithful. His eyes are on you. He might seem absent, but he sees and he knows. God is faithful, so fear him. Don't fear the world, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart as your God. And so let us resolve together to go into this week and together to go into this year and say in our hearts and our lives, Christ is Lord. Christ is my Lord. Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to your promises for the growth of your kingdom around the world very often in and through persecution for the confidence that gives us please help us to rightly fear you and have Christ as our Lord and King this week in Jesus name Amen